The godfather of literary and movie fame wanted to avoid trafficking in illegal drugs. The reality of organized crime in modern times is much different. Organized crime is the source of nearly unimaginable quantities of illegal drugs. The Justice Department's Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force, established by President Reagan, late last year marked 40 years of operation. Joining me in studio with a retrospective and what they're planning, the task force's director, Adam Cohen. Mr. Cohen, good to have you with us. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate your inviting me. And it is called Task Forces, so maybe give us a description of the apparatus here and where it fits in the panoply of justice agencies and throughout the government. Well, as we celebrate our 40th year, the OSADF program is the largest law enforcement task force in the United States. We are about 570 federal prosecutors, 1,200 federal agents, 4,000 state and local police officers, operating over 5,300 virtual task forces across the United States, plus 19 co-located strike forces in the United States. Yeah, so how many people altogether do you encompass? Well, we're accountable for somewhere north of 5,000 that are part of the task force concept. All right, and let's go back into the history a little bit. What was the stimulus that got it started early in the Reagan administration in 1982? Well, at the time was the explosion really of crack cocaine and the violence associated with crack cocaine in the inner cities. And President Reagan's idea was to bring together all of the federal law enforcement agencies under the leadership of federal prosecutors to begin to coordinate efforts and do priority targeting, make sure that everybody was on the same page and that we were targeting the biggest threats across the United States. That really exploded into the 80s, and then we've been going strong ever since then. Sure. People that were in Washington at that time remember the crack cocaine. It seemed like almost an intractable problem and really killing people daily. Very much so. And, you know, cocaine remains a huge problem. But, of course, throughout time, we've seen other threats in the counter-narcotics arena where we've seen issues with heroin. We now are tackling uh, methamphetamine and synthetic opioids. Last year, we lost 107,000 Americans to drug overdose. So as the problem set has changed... We have morphed to try to attack that problem set as best we can over the last four decades of the OSADEF program. And the organizations that you go after have changed, too. I mean, the traditional mafia in those 40 years is not so much of a force as it was back then in prior years. And now it seems like it has a more international component. Very much so. When this was begun in 1982, you would think of traditional LCN, La Cosa Nostra, organized crime. Today, we are looking at criminal networks that are extraordinarily sophisticated, everything from drug cartels to Eastern European organized crime and even cyber criminals. OCDF has actually changed quite a bit since 1982 when we were solely built as a counter-narcotics entity. 2009, we expanded to a broader transnational organized crime mission. And in fact, in 2017, a presidential executive order was drafted, which called on OCDF specifically to look at the transnational organized crime problem. And Congress actually changed our appropriations language to allow us to make sure that we had the flexibility to tackle broader transnational organized crime problems, the kinds of things that look like human trafficking or weapons trafficking or sophisticated cybercrime. And how did that change the way you operate? I mean, because some of these sources are overseas, and then you've got the issue of cooperation from foreign law enforcement 
extradition and all of these other sticky issues. Absolutely. And most of the sticky legal issues are addressed by the forward warriors of the Department of Justice and the U.S. attorneys community. And then, of course, the resiliency of federal law enforcement in that as we see changes and challenges in this problem set, they are keeping us ahead of the curve with new and innovative investigative methods. You know, communications is the hub of what criminals do, right? Those communications methods have changed quite a bit over the last 40 years in the life of the program. We began with landline communications. Landline communications moved to beepers and beepers to cell phones and cell phones to satellite phones and satellite phones to the Internet and the Internet to now smartphones and apps and encryption. And throughout those 40 years, as criminal organizations have gotten more and more sophisticated in the way in which they communicate – Law enforcement had to meet those challenges and get more and more sophisticated in the way in which they tackle those challenges. We're speaking with Adam Cohen. He is executive director of the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Forces, part of the Justice Department. And I wanted to ask you about that because do you find that the government has often been a step behind technologically? I mean, that issue goes back to the original days of the FBI when their revolvers were not as powerful as the ones used by you know, the people Elliot Ness was tracking down and all of this. And by the way, he was never an FBI agent, contrary to popular belief. But you know what I'm saying? So the criminals used pagers and these modern communications subsequent to that, sometimes before the government could even buy them. Well, I wouldn't categorize it as our being behind. I think we are in the same place. The technology develops, whether it's developed for criminals, that where criminals use that technology, or where law enforcement use that technology. So we're equal on the level of technology usage. We are, by nature, reactive. We react to the crime occurring. So we are always working to try to stay on the curve and anticipate the next moves of criminal activity. But I wouldn't suggest that we're necessarily behind. I would suggest that we are meeting those challenges where they come. And when you think of drug enforcement, I mean, in popular culture, once again, the feeling is that it was a kinetic type of undercover activity, physical danger. Is that still part of it or is it mostly cyber and surveillance and evidence gathering and then you pounce and it's all over? Yeah, I think if you would talk with our law enforcement partners from the FBI, the DEA, HSI, the ATF, the U.S. Marshal Service, they would say they're still very kinetic. They are still dealing with meeting people in person because as much as there is a lot of reliance in communication with new technology, things like apps and encryption, Everything, at a certain point, everybody's got to touch. Uh, so they would suggest that we are really very much still in the, in the realm of using human sources and having human interaction, which is by nature dangerous. Sure. So there is still undercover type of work, infiltration and role playing and getting close to people that are often violent. Yes, no question. So in some sense, you are a vertically integrated operation. That is to say, you have the evidence gathering and the almost gumshoe type of work going on, the surveillance, but then the prosecutorial element, they're all in one team. Absolutely. In fact, OCDF's goal is to drive collaboration. Our job is to leverage the strengths of the law enforcement community under the guidance of federal prosecutors to do priority targeting and then to target command and control elements of these criminal organizations. For the most part, OCDF is not doing street-level narcotics enforcement. What we're trying to do is disrupt and dismantle entire criminal organizations. The way in which you do that is you target 
nodes, nodes of communication, nodes of security, nodes of money trafficking and movement of the dollars that are generated through illegal narcotics trafficking, illegal human trafficking or human smuggling uh, or other criminal activity. So the OCDF idea is sort of advanced law enforcement. Our job is to bring together all of the strengths of the federal law enforcement agencies under the umbrella of federal prosecutors as we drive prosecutions forward with that goal of disruption and ultimately dismantlement. And getting back to one technological detail, the dark web has really emerged as a place where criminals operate Mm -hmm. of all stripes. And so have you had to build up kind of expertise in knowing where to go on the dark web and using Tor browsers and this kind of thing? I mean, it's just there on the web, but it's encrypted, I guess, is the best way to describe it. Without going into specifics, I can tell you that, yes, we have built up capabilities quite a bit. Our federal law enforcement partners at the FBI and HSI are really forward-leaning here. DEA, of course, is in this space. And you'd be surprised at the amount of activity that's occurring on the open web, not to mention everything that's happening in the dark web. It's really daunting. uh, And these issues of encryption and communication are very, very challenging. And let's begin this part with the intergovernmental aspect of the work, because there are lots of federal law enforcement components. You have alcohol, tobacco, firearms, and explosives. You've got the Drug Enforcement Administration. How does the task forces interoperate with all of those pieces? It's a really interesting question, Tom. The issue here is OCDF is really a synchronizer. We're a coordinator. So I bring together pieces of all of these federal law enforcement agencies, DOJ law enforcement agencies, DHS law enforcement agencies, Treasury law enforcement agencies. My job is to enhance collaboration and coordination among those agencies. So while I don't own those assets, those assets are owned by the federal agency, the DEA agent or the FBI agent or the HSI agent. I go to those federal law enforcement components and say, I need the following to enhance this mission And I will agree to reimburse you for the costs of those bodies. And we end up having a negotiation such that they contribute to the task force. That's been going on successfully now for 40 years. And we do that with sort of a float of where are our priorities. And if the parties go in one direction, we enhance our muscle in that direction and we move some resources around. I hope that's helpful. So a given ATF or given DEA agent or Homeland Security investigations agent could find him or herself working on any of several assignments for a year or so, depending on the priorities that you all agree to. Absolutely. And there's a built-in governance system that's developed over the four decades of the program where all of this starts at the ground level at each of the 93 U.S. attorney's offices. There is a lead task force attorney for the OCDF program in every one of the 93 U.S. attorney's offices. That person chairs a district coordination committee made up of the law enforcement components. They talk about what are the threats in that particular area. They nest under a regional director. They look at regional problems. We acknowledge the fact that the problems, whether they look like counter-narcotics or they look like human smuggling or cybercrime, are different in New England than they are on the southwest border or that they are in the upper Midwest. Uh, So we allow there to be some flexibility at the district level and then at the regional level, all of which nests under this national program where we look at the priorities and challenges given to us by the attorney general and the president. And so the caseload then is generated by those locals that see what's going on in their areas, those local prosecutors, and then it 
feeds up into what you said is the agenda for the agency. Absolutely right. That's a perfect encapsulation of what's happening. They're looking at how to meet national priorities based on their local problems so that they fit into those prioritization sort of racking and stacking of what the priorities are. Today, synthetic opioids and methamphetamine, huge problems. But those may not be the problems along some of the border states. They may not be the problems, for example, in Puerto Rico, where they're seeing an influx of maritime-driven interdictions driven by cocaine smugglers. So the task force is a national task force that allows for us to target local, regional, and national priorities. Because the fentanyl and the synthetic opioid seems to be an almost overwhelming problem right now with, you know, they discover at the border bags of millions and millions and millions of pills, enough to kill everybody in the United States seems to come across every two days. So is that a issue for Arizona and Texas? Or is it Maine also? I mean, how do you prioritize what it is that the caseload consists of? Yeah, well, there is no question that nationally we have a synthetic opioids crisis. And there's no question that synthetic opioids, especially the fentanyls and the fentanyl class of drugs, are killing Americans every single day. And there is not a state that's not impacted by that. But we do have to acknowledge that in Maine or Vermont, that may not be their problem of the day or of the month. So we give a lot of flexibility to that. The idea that we target the synthetics, whether it's methamphetamine or the fentanyl class of drugs, is really quite scary right now, given the overdoses and given the horrible impact that's having on communities. Just yesterday, the Justice Department announced a takedown in the Southern District of Georgia in a huge case where the federal government brought down 75 defendants in a OCDF investigation that was targeting the command and control, trying to take out a hub. And then we did it in partnership with state and locals where they arrested 35. So there's a huge interaction going on between federal effort and state and local effort. And OCDF pushes very hard on trying to make sure that we can bridge those communications, those information sharing challenges, those intelligence sharing gaps, so that we are really as close to the curve as we can possibly be in what is this terrible synthetic opioids crisis. We're speaking with Adam Cohen, executive director of the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Forces at the Justice Department. Do you ever feel like you're shoveling against the ocean because, you know, the war on drugs has been extant as long as I can remember, and yet the demand, people want these things because of whatever it does, you know, it makes them feel or whatever, but the drug demand in the United States never seems to wane. And as you arrest and put away more people and break up more cartels and networks, new ones emerge because the demand creates great incentives. I mean, is there ever an end to all of this? Do you wonder about that? Yeah. Those kinds of questions are the challenging questions that we wrestle with. It would be too hard for me to get my hands around all of that question. I would respond this way. I've been in this fight for 33 years. I've spent my entire career as a public servant and as a prosecutor working in the counter-narcotics, counter-transnational organized crime space. And I still haven't lost hope. I can tell you my team hasn't lost it. I can tell you the 5,000 members of the OCDF task forces across the United States haven't. Our area of expertise is not in prevention and treatment. Sure. Our area of expertise is in supply reduction. We are trying to drive down the piston of supply to give breathing room to prevention and treatment professionals so that they can get their hands around the issues of demand. And we work closely, frankly, with Raul Gupta, the director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy, who tries to balance 
all of these issues. They're incredibly important issues for us. But the idea of have we lost hope? Do we feel like we're continuing to push that rock up the hill? Every day is a new challenge, but every day we find some window where we think we're making progress moving forward, and we're going to continue to do that. And when you look at Mexico, for example, there was an arrest of the uh, drug lord Escobar's son the other day. And when you see him arrested in film, the first thought people have is, well, whose side is that guy grabbing his left and right arm really on? And will he be sprung in three hours because they've been paid off? And when he appears before a judge in Mexico, well, whose side is that judge really on? Whose payroll is he really respecting? And if he's respecting the federal payroll, is he going to be shot dead tomorrow? These questions, it's really bad. What mechanisms do you have in place for the long-term sense that the United States folks in this whole chain of investigation, of surveillance, of prosecution, and of judgment are, for the most part, non-corrupt? I mean, that's one of the beauties of our system. Not that things don't ever go wrong. You still have people that are bad from time to time. But fundamentally, it's still clean. How do you work to ensure that? Well, corruption is something that everybody's always watching. I have great faith in our federal law enforcement partners and our federal prosecutors and in our federal judiciary. And I know that that level of faith is based on a whole series of checks and balances, frankly, built into our system over decades and decades and decades. And I have no doubt that what we're seeing is extraordinarily tight and is extraordinarily rule bound. And I'm not the least bit concerned about what we see here. We have great partners. We have great partners in a number of foreign countries. And we have a lot of reliance on those partners downstream uh, because we know that coca is not produced in the United States. Heroin poppy is not grown in the United States. The vast majority of synthetics are not produced in the United States. So we have to have really strong partnerships with a number of foreign governments. And our partners at the DEA and at the FBI and at Homeland Security Investigations primarily have really strong relationships in-country so that they have a level of faith in the people that they're working with so that we can have the kind of success that you're talking about with Chapo's son from a week or so ago. Sure. And what are your plans for the next 12 months, the next fiscal? Finally, the money will be coming through from the Treasury accounts to the agencies that actually need it. Yeah. Well, OCDF as a synchronizer and collaborator, a big part of what we do is we resource our partners. So the budget cycle is important to us. So we watch things like the CR and we watch things like the budget cycle. We're trying to wrestle now with what 23 looks like. We are waiting for the 24 passback to come. We're planning our 25. So we're very in tune with all of those cycles. And what we're trying to do is use what are limited resources. They always are. Uh, try to be good stewards of the public dollar and put our limited resources where we're going to find the greatest return on investment. That's really what OCDF is. Our job is to try to make sure we get the best of the best from each of our law enforcement agencies and we direct it towards the targets that will have the most positive impact on the American public. So it's still the case then maybe that the small fry can be the catalyst for who you really want to get and that classic technique still works? Very much so. There's a sign outside my office, Tom, that says making little cases bigger. And that's what it is that we try to do. Sort of whistleblowers of the street, you might say. Sort of. Adam Cohen is executive director of the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Forces, part of the Justice Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it.
And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in d- direct care. And, and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, pr- profound disabilities are are really, um, you know, we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, I'll take a look at it and see, see you know, throw, uh, send in my information, and lo and behold, I I, I get hired, and um, I learn. Uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused uh has a has a good story like it can just turn a day around for you and 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 you think of i i you know often when you'll walk away i'll be like you know whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know stressing me out and come on you know like look at look at terrell like he 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 faces everything with optimism and 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 i've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the united states and globally you see people who have had everything stacked against them you know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands a bit. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit 
uh, from a- the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I Tim Shriver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give uh, working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do. But but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I. I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere that, that, you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful. And, and uh, I mean, we work hard and, you know, we we're up against, you know, the things that nonprofits are up against and, you know, the, you know, the issues of the day, but uh, man, you see it, it and, and, and the inclusion and the at special Olympics, no one's excluded. You know, no, right. no one's excluded. Yeah. Everyone is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot. But you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I'd mentioned earlier, um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the greatest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website, uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.